so last week we talked about how uh, we went from the origins of the Bible, specifically the New Testament, up through the Reformation. And what's, what caught me off guard about the Reformation is that it was Bible translators that took what was originally a Latin book at the time uh, and translated it into English, which was the peasant language at the time. So congratulations, we all can read because of Bible translators. Yeah, mind blown. All right, so uh, we did get up through the Reformation. I needed to take us back uh, a little bit for a couple of points because the other thing that's really impacted me is the concepts that are, we take for granted but are completely foreign. So in 1277, there was a church council. Uh, there were some big wigs that went and had this church council. Um, and what they did is they formally rejected this Greco-Islamic idea that logic dictated what God could or could not do. I was listening to a podcast this morning with a, uh, a Muslim, and their critique of Christ is that, well, God would never do that. It's not logical for God to become man. And it's like, well, this council here is the reason why we don't believe that God is stuck in our logical system. Uh, it's crazy to think about that's, you know, that still happens. But it says the Bible is free. So the idea of the world is that it's logical, we can follow it. But God created the world before the world was here. So God is free. Um, so what's crazy about that is that's hugely important. If we're made in the image of God, we are also free, which is the foundation for a few things a little bit later. So a few years later, uh, 1287, uh, William of Ockham, have any, anybody heard of Ockham's razor? Yeah, common thing in math. Anyway, so what he did is he forced the idea that, that since God's creative acts are subject to no eternal truths, knowledge of the world could not be derived deductively from philosophy, but it must come through actual observation. So before that, people, like you have even Aristotle with this idea of everything's logical, everything can be figured out in the brain of the average person, it's fine. That's not the case. What this led to was the scientific revolution beginning in 1543. All the way, yeah, all the way through my schooling, I was always told science and the church don't go together. Well, that's not the case. The beginning of the scientific revolution was... Uh, with the idea of the heliocentric model of the of our universe, well, our galaxy, back then they thought it was the universe, and that came with Copernicus. So back in the day, they thought that the Earth was the center of the universe. I think there's still some flat earthers out there that still believe that, but it's a situation that they were arguing about this. Uh, and the scientific revolution culminated with uh, Isaac Newton's laws of motion and universal gravitation. By the way, Galileo, which we'll talk about in a minute, and Newton... They're all Christians. Of the 52 men credited as having the biggest impact on the scientific revolution, 50 of them were Christian, and they were all and they were all educated by the church. Back then, you had no state-funded education systems, no state-funded uh, universities, all the church. The common idea uh, taught now is that the church was anti-science, and they often will cite Galileo and his persecution, which is a lie. So the church at the time burned heretics, like we talked about last week, uh, like Tyndale, for translating the Bible into English. The church debated revolutionary ideas among their top scholars. They often had get-togethers to argue about things and compare them with each other, and they all read as much as they possibly could. Uh, so... The thing is about Galileo is that he argued his point before leadership more than once about this idea of, a, of the heliocentric model. So what happened? His crime? Uh, he, he wrote a book at the request of the Pope who actually liked him. 
<laughs> to describe the two viewpoints. And he named, the problem though is that he had a, he, he basically sent a text message before having somebody read it, right? So he wrote this whole like narrative, and it's a story about them arguing back and forth, and he accidentally named the person who was like, who believed that the earth was the center of the universe, like a moron by accident, called him uh, the simpleton, right? That did not go over well with the church at the time. So this angered the Pope and justified Galileo eventually dying under house arrest for his opposition to the, the earth-centric uh, position. So they didn't burn Galileo at the stake. They argued with him, and then he called them all morons with the book. They got mad and said, don't come outside anymore. That's what happened. But again, they burned Tyndale at the stake for translating the Bible into English. So there's the scientific revolution had its core in Christian thought. Moving on. So we have uh, a gentleman named John Amos Comenius. Uh, he's considered, and this is in 1592 to 1670, and we're going to spend much of our time here. There's a lot that goes on. He's considered the father of modern education. This guy wrote 90 books on education, served as a bishop, inspired the birth of the Royal Society of Science in England, and helped establish the first modern university at Halle, Germany, which later merged with Martin Luther's church, or at Martin Luther's university, to become Wittenberg Halle University. Big, big guy. Uh, saw the, he, he saw medieval schools at the time as slaughterhouses of the mind, and he set out to reform them. Now, believing... It's come full circle. Yes. Yeah. It, well, yeah, there's craziness about that as well. So, called them slaughterhouses of the mind. And yes, there are a few uh, parallels to today. Um, but he believed that discipling the next generation through education would bring about a new world. He called his biblical philosophy Pan-Sophia, integrating all wisdom, secular and sacred, into a biblical framework. He, so the concept that the church was anti-science and that, we, that they tried to eliminate, is that's not the case. The father of our modern education system, they sought out all knowledge. Um, as we'll learn a little bit more uh, the next time we talk, you have monks who are not just capturing the Bible, but any, any and all knowledge that was available to them. They captured it and copied it. That was part of their, uh, the, the monastery. They, they, this is boring. They didn't have copy machines. They would sit there and copy the book over and over and over, and they would gather knowledge. And they would actually, for like healthcare, they would test things, which is pretty crazy. Okay. Oops, sorry, that's yeah, not going to stay up, I don't think. Uh, but uh, so moving into Protestantism and the English monarchy. So at the end of uh, what we talked about last week, you have the reformers. They really angered the church. And there's a situation here that is not good. So between the death of Henry VIII, the guy that wanted to get married multiple times just so he could have an heir, uh, in 1557 and the glorious revolution in 1688, there was turmoil in England. England, uh, the English monarchs were alternating between Catholic and Protestant rulers. Uh, due to the English ruling, uh, the head of the state determined what the religion was. And so as they swapped back and forth in the monarchy between Protestant and Catholic, so were the people having to switch back and forth between Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestants were considered heretics by the Catholic rulers and many of them were executed. So very bloody situation. Protestants often had dissenting opinions on such things as uh, the position of the state within the church, uh, the divine right of kings, which is the idea of how the pope got to keep powers that they could decide who ruled, uh, 
and that it was God's determining them to be king. So you couldn't say, oh, you shouldn't be king because, you know, Bible says that we shouldn't have kings. Um, and then whether or not the head of state should be the head of the church, which was the case with the Anglican church. Protestant, uh, there were many Protestant factions uh, that broke up over all these arguments. You have everything from uh, pilgrims, you have Presbyterians, and they all, as we see today in the Protestant wing of Christianity, there's so many different sects. I mean, I think we consider ourselves a Bible church. You have the Baptist, you've got the Pentecostal. You could just go down the list on how many different uh, types of uh, Protestantism there is out there. Uh, so pilgrims were one of those groups. Uh, the Calvinist Puritans were known as separatists, uh, and they believed in the separation from the Church of England due to the immense corruption that they had witnessed within the, within the church. Um, and finally, over about a century of disputes uh, and claims to the throne involving execution, deposition, civil war, and even a decade with no clear ruler, there was a convention of parliament decreed in England to be a Protestant kingdom and only could have a Protestant ruler. So they expelled to finally get rid of Catholicism for good. Um, in line for the throne was Mary II, the daughter of the recently deposed king, and her husband, his name was William of Orange, or William III, and he was elected a regal monarch. A formal parliament act prohibited Catholic rulers was passed, and by 1707, the, the parliaments of England and Scotland joined together and created the Kingdom of Great Britain. With his ascension to the throne, the Anglican Church regained power. Now, what that means is in the Anglican Church, the king is the head of the church, right? So Catholic Church, Pope is the head of that church. Back when Henry VIII was like, I want to have a kid, I want to get a divorce, he, they create this whole other church, he becomes head of the church. This is the reinstitution of that. So the problem, though, is that due to the resurrection of the monarchy, the king returning to be the head of the Church of England, it was a requirement made by the clergy to swear allegiance to the king. This caused a problem. Uh, so England ended up expelling more than 400 Anglican clergymen who had become priests to serve God and refused the oath of allegiance to the king. There was also a decree signed that prohibited bishops and clergy members from meeting with each other to deliberate on ecclesiastical matters, which is how the church should be led. There was a whole thing with the Protestants. There's a lot to go into. I'm just going to move forward. But there, what happened there is that they got rid of, they persecuted the most pious of the groups, the Puritans. Uh, they kicked them out. At this time, you have uh, the Mayflower coming to what is now the United States of America, right? So they get out of there because of the religious persecution. So due to the conflicts within the monarchy and the church for more than a century, along with the most pious, peoples being, uh, pious people being expelled, there was a sharp decline in morality that also birthed the rise of deism, which if you're a scholar of the founding fathers, there were a few deists there. And the idea there is that God started things and then he backed away, which is not biblical, but that's what they believed. So deism progressed to rationalism, rationalism to skepticism, onto atheism, and finally to cynicism, which leaves us in a place where England is uh, doing really well in terms of economic power. Um, so what happened here is England became the dominating force across the globe, but corruption returned to the church and the monarchy, and it darkened most aspects of English life. It, it's hard to explain how bad life in England was at this time. So this is end of the 1600s, beginning of the 1700s. Uh, in 1713, England had monopolized the slave trade through a, the treaty of a really hard word. It's in the notes, all right? I'm not going to try. 
So England monopolized the slave trade. The slave trade bred financial greed, brutalized masters and slaves' lives, and made labor undignified. I'm I'm sure we've all been subject to media showing us what the slave trade was like and slavery, right? Uh, the The Industrial Revolution was taking off at this point, but at the same attitudes that slave traders had uh, influenced many of the owners of the mines, factories, and mills in the treatment of their workers. Corruption spread like cancer. Nepotism, place-seeking, and bribery became the order of the day in politics, especially when it was election time. Again, parallels. All right. Uh, Laws are very much separated the rich from the poor. Laws are written to hand out the death penalty for petty crimes. Like if you stole something, you get hanged. It's crazy. Uh, like, yeah. Uh, all the while, the rich people uh, dealt in bribes without prosecution. I wonder what they would have done if they found classified material. <laughs> also, this is another issue. Uh, strong gin was everywhere. So they drank gin instead of beer in pubs, and it was more available than clean water at the time. Like, you want something to drink, they hand you a gin. It's like, okay. <laughs> uh, the inevitable evils of alcoholism followed, uh, including poverty, violence, prostitution, and murder, even of children. The infant mortality rates were as high as 75% in some places. And that's mostly due to the cruelty of both men and women. Very dark time. Um, So, John Wesley, uh, born in 1703, dies in 1791. He was one of 19 children. And uh, my wife and I were looking up this. A lot of people had a lot of kids back then, and maybe half of them made it to adulthood because of how hard it was back then. Uh, He was educated at Oxford. He and his brother Charles were deeply religious. And uh, they helped the poor and downtrodden, even when their peers despised them for it, even at Oxford. So like, they're, they're studying under the church and helping people. And because of how corrupt the church was at the time, they despised them for that. I like this thought before Ryan goes into what John Wesley did. It said that, of course, his mother, 19 children, probably a lot of, that when she would spend time with the Lord, and you know, you're busy, the houses weren't huge, she would take her apron and she would put it over her head. And the children knew that when mom had that over her head, she was spending time with the Lord. And you can see how committed she was to prayer. And, uh, and of course, two of her sons uh, were mightily used by the Lord. Absolutely. Uh, so, he and his brother uh, both were ordained by the Church of England, and they made a mission trip over to the American colonies. I believe it was Savannah, Georgia, and the purpose was to uh, convert the uh, Native Americans there. On the way, there was a big storm, and the ship mast broke. I don't know if any of you watch like pirate shows or anything, and you know, your whole life is like dependent on the mast of that ship to get you where you're going. In the storm, it breaks in half. Everybody's losing their mind, except for this group of like really devout Christians who are singing hymns. Like that's very parallel to Jesus asleep in the in the hold of the ship and <laughs> all the disciples freaking out, right? Uh, and this catches uh, John Wesley's eye. All right. So those, that group was called the, the Moravians, I believe is how you pronounce that. Uh, it's in the notes. Um, and they had a very deep faith. Upon his return to England, he sought them out and realized that he had become Christian in name only. So the church called them Christian because that was the state religion. You're an English person, you're Christian. That's just how it was. 
so during a service in which they discussed Martin Luther's commentary on Romans, he was very moved. He subsequently repented and gave his life to Jesus, legitimately. Due to his deep, the deep nature of his faith, many churches wouldn't even allow him to speak. So the Anglicans were like, nah, you're too fiery, you know, stay out of the pulpit. Uh, his friend George Whitefield, who was very instrumental in the Great Awakening in the United States, uh, instead convinced him to preach in the open air on the streets, which this guy's an ordained minister within the Anglican church that's, you preach in churches, he didn't like it at first. But he did so for more than 50 years. The Anglican church did not like him or his teachings at all, and he suffered much at, their hands, at the hands of the priests of the church. At first, the general public didn't like him either. <laughs> and for the first 30 years, he narrowly escaped death numerous times. Um, it talks about how he was the victim of a lot of crimes, but because the church and the, the state didn't like him very much, nobody would ever prosecute anybody who did anything to him. Uh, despite this, he, was, he succeeded in bringing about the Great Awakening in England. And he converted thousands and established the Methodist faith. So he would be out preaching on the streets. Originally, people got you know, angry at him because they wanted to do their thing. By the end of his speeches, there's many accounts of people taking their hats off and kneeling and crying because of the message that he had brought to the streets. So it, it's hard to understate the impact of John Wesley upon England. Here's a few. He is responsible, his influence is responsible for the emancipation of the industrial worker, factory schools, ragged schools, the humanitization of the prison system, the reform of the penal code, the formation of the Salvation Army, the Religious Tract Society, the Pastoral Aid Society, the London City Mission, Mueller's Homes, Fagan's Homes, the National Children's Homes and Orphanages, the forming of evening classes and polytechnics, Agnes Weston's Soldiers and Sailors' Rest, the YMCA, uh, Bernardo's the NSPCC, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Guides, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty and, uh, Cruelty, and many, many more. So he had a massive impact on England at the time. So, moving on. This, this part, when I first heard about this, they talked about this on the podcast that caught my attention. No one ever told me this. And I don't think they even teach us in Western schools. But at this point, the British Empire was growing in power thanks to its superior technology, trade, and the colonies. The East India Company had established control over India, which is where the author of the book is from. And the slave trade was still in full swing. Both the initial wave of British rulers of India and the slave trade were run by the unscrupulous, greedy riffraff of the British Empire, looking to make as much money as possible. So... On the scene steps a man named William Wilberforce, born in 1759. Uh, he became a member of the House of Commons in 1780, a rather young man at the time. He became a Christian in 1785 while on holiday uh, and reading and discussing a book with a friend of his. He developed a deep faith that greatly changed his approach to public life. He even says that he thought about going into the, the ministry at the time, but was convinced uh, by John Newton, Newton, who had previously been a slave trader, but converted to Christianity. John Newton is the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Yeah. So he convinced him to stay and work through the, the state system. It also says that he read his Bible every day. 
in steps Charles Grant. This man went to India, just like the rest of the riffraff, to go make some money. And while he was there, he saw a great famine. So India at the time was ruled by the caste system of Hinduism, and you also had um, Muslims there as well ruling. And the caste system states that because of karma, wherever you were born, however you were born, you stay in that caste system and you live that out in hopes of changing your karma in the next life. They didn't take care of the poor at all. So Charles Grant sees his master, his, the person he's working for feed up to 7,000 people a day. He unfortunately suffered the loss of both of his daughters, which eventually led him to Christianity. With this newly found faith and compassion, he wrote a famous appeal for missions to improve Indians' lives there through education. So that kind of, you know, like missions for education, yeah. The church was the uh, arbiters of education at the time, and he wanted the church to come and educate the Indians for them to have a better life. His pleas fell mostly on deaf ears until he met Wilberforce. So, in Parliament, the rules were every 20 years, the East India Company had to renew its charter with Parliament. That's the only time that you can make any modifications to the agreement. In 1793, Wilberforce brought Grant's petition for missions and education to consider before Parliament. He won the House of Commons, but he lost in the House of Lords, due mostly because of them having large financial stakes in the slave trade and in India at the time. There were already issues with the, at the time, there were already ab uh, issues with abol abolitionists injecting morality into business in South Africa, and it was causing some issues. This meant that it would be another 20 years before they could have another chance at changing the charter to accommodate Grant's mission request. In spite of that, a gentleman named William Carey, born in 1761, passed away in 1834, he wrote a popular paper about the Great Commission. And he argued that the Great Commission didn't just apply to the apostles. I think we have issues about similar things today, like healing or, you know, uh, that didn't just apply to the apostles, but the Great Commission applies to all, all Christians. In 1793, he, even without the official parliament support, left for India and became a father of education in the Indian common tongues. He translated the Bible into many vernacular languages in India. So back in Parliament again, 20 years later, 1813, Grant and Wilberforce won the hearts and minds of the Houses of Parliament, and they secured a change to the charter. The East India Company would have to invest 100,000 rupees annually from its profits to educate Indians. That, at the time, was equivalent to about 100,000 pounds. So, you know, rupees today, if you looked up on the stock exchange, <laughs> it ain't very much. Back then, it was close to the, uh, the pound. That money was eventually invested in teaching English to a small group of intellectual Indians so that they could further translate the established English library into other vernacular languages. The education, they stated even in Parliament that the education's explicitly stated purpose was for the liberation of India from British control and subsequent self-rule. The impact here, they don't teach you this, it's a fact though. Every living literary language in India is a testimony to the Bible translators and missionaries of the time. In, two, yeah, in, in 2005, a, um, I can't pronounce it, hard word, a scholar from Mumbai, a Dr. Babu Verghese, uh, I'm doing okay on that one, <laughs> uh, he submitted a 700-page doctoral thesis to the University of Nagpur. 
it demonstrated that Bible translators using the dialects of mostly illiterate Indians created 71 modern languages, modern literary languages, meaning they could read and write in that language, including the national languages of India, which is Hindi, Pakistan, it's called Urdu, and Bangladesh, which is in Bengali. Five Brahmin, okay, in the caste system of India, Brahmins are the highest caste. Five Brahmin scholars examined the thesis and in 2008 awarded him a PhD. They then unanimously recommended his thesis be required reading for students of Indian linguistics. So here's a quote. The efforts of three English, just three English missionaries to learn hundreds of dialects spoken by illiter illiterate Indians and turn them into 73 literary languages created the modern South Asia by bestowing on them linguistic identification, the press, the university, and social consciousness. That's a quote from Hugh Tinker. So I... I used to work with lots of people of Indian descent. My wife and I go to a lot of doctors, all of, uh, most of them from Indian descent that we see. And it boggles the mind to think that it was our faith in men driven by compassion from the Bible to, to go and, and learn hundreds of dialects and distill it so that they could read the Bible and then from there be educated. I struggle with Duolingo trying to finish my Spanish lessons. <laughs> so India completely changed thanks to our faith. Here's another struggle. William Wilberforce had another great victory while he was in Parliament. He was approached in 1787. Again, this is happening about the same time as what was going on with India. Uh, by a group of abolitionists led by a Thomas Clarkson to end the slave trade uh, that England still had that monopoly on. And he used this position on numerous occasions to bring votes on acts to end the slave trade with evidence gathered by Clarkson and other abolitionists. There's a great movie on this that my wife and I watched in preparations called Amazing Grace. Uh, it's got Benedict Cumberbatch and lots of famous people that you probably can't remember their names, but you'll, you'll see them and you'll recognize them. Um, it's, it's astounding. Uh, the, the work that these people put in, they traveled and captured firsthand accounts of how bad slavery was uh, from ship owners, uh, the, from uh, Mr. Newton. They talked to him about what that was like being a slaver because he didn't, he, he was responsible for the 20,000 slaves aboard, aboard his ships before he converted. Uh, they fought for, for 20 years until finally they passed the Slave Trade Act of 1807 abolishing the slave trade. So Wilberforce, along with abolitionists moved by their faith, eliminated the English slave trade. And in 1833, after having retiring from parliament a few years prior, and just three days before his death, he received notice that the bill for the abolition of slavery, guaranteeing almost the complete abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire, was sure to pass. The bill itself formally honored Wilberforce in the process. So just a quick recap. From the, the creation of the New Testament in Rome, in the vernacular language that was at that time was a Greek, 
through the reformers, you have the dark ages, the middle ages. We talked a little bit about science being born out of these universities. And don't get me wrong, so many things wrong with the Catholic church at the time, the church in general. I mean, you have the Anglican church. Anytime that you put, you, know, you, you can't argue with the guy at the top, you're going to have problems within the organization. Our ability to read in our own language is the result of pious men who just wanted people to know the truth because they believed that knowing the truth would set you free, a biblical principle. That moved into ending one of the most horrific things that this planet has ever produced. And on top of that, became a blessing to the whole world in creating the, the not only like teaching people how to read, but taking their language and putting it into a, a vocabulary, into an alphabet and then a vocabulary, and then teaching them concepts that they had no idea of. All the while, and again, we'll talk about healthcare and how that is, was revolutionized also by, by Christians. But when, when I heard this, my faith was reignited because we've been told for so long, especially about the sciences that, oh, no, no, the, the rational atheist types came up with all of that. You know, it kind of, and then they give us a hard time about what the church did. Like they talk about the crusades or uh, things like that. It's like, when you look into that, that wasn't God's best in those times with those people. You have a power structure created at the vacuum of the, the Roman Empire, and they're sending illiterate people to go and die. It's wrong. Should we address that? Absolutely. But the triumphs that they, that I believe, have been trying to be hid from us, that we have blessed the world, that our faith, that pious people who really believed changed the world and were brave and stood up to some of the harshest, most evil things that has ever been on this planet. There's a story that he gives about his, his life in India as he uh, finishes up his education. He moves with his wife into a, a part of England. Uh, not England, a part of India that was um, heavily populated by the lowest caste, the untouchables. Uh, he worked with them on many occasions. One in particular is that there was a, a, a hailstorm that happened in the area there. He was in the hospital at the time and there was a hailstorm. And he went out and started working with the community to gather funds to bring relief to the that lowest caste system. And he was told repeatedly by the government, says, no, you can't bring relief. That's our job. You can't do that. You don't do that. And he's, okay, we won't bring relief. We'll just, we'll just give. And they said, well, how can you give if you don't, don't gather money to give the relief? So you can't give relief either. He's like, okay, fine, we'll get together and we'll pray. He's like, no, prayer, having a prayer service is going to disrupt the peace of the, of the, the group. So, no, you can't do that. And so at that time, he went with the group in his, his, this, I don't want to call it a compound, but like they have a, a home where they have several people now living with them. Um, and they went and they prayed and it says, do we, have a, do we have to follow them or do we have a right of civil disobedience at this time? Well, he chose not to follow that and have this prayer meeting. So the, the gangster at the top of the, of the city at the time, who was running the city, has him come over to his house and he says, I, if you do not cancel that prayer meeting, I will take you out into the jungles and I will kill you 
and nothing, nothing will ever happen to me and no one will ever know where you are. Is that okay with you? And because of, the, again, Vishal's faith, Dr. Mangawaldi, he says, well, I need to go home and talk with my wife to see if she's okay with being a widow. Like, <laughs> the faith that this guy has. And nothing happens, he gets put in jail. He obviously doesn't die. He gets put in jail for a little while, which he starts doing some more investigation into the Bible at the time. But the, the local papers come out for him, and they end up having to release him. And they end up, for several, up until 97, uh, giving out massive amounts of relief, um, teaching people how to, you know, basic cleanliness. Uh, you have midwives uh, that were the lowest caste at the time, uneducated, couldn't read, and they were doing things, basic, like, Things that we know, right? So they were delivering babies, but they were using a scythe to cut the umbilical cord and dirty rags to, to clean up the blood and simple things like cleanliness. Like, no, use clean, sterile things. Just little things like that that revolutionize the lives of those people in the lowest caste. The faith this man has. If you get to go to YouTube and look up Vishal, there's many videos with him being interviewed and and stories like what Ryan said, where he said, well, let me go ask my wife if she's all right with being a widow. <laughs> I mean, the boldness of his. So have you enjoyed this tonight? So in a couple of weeks, we'll have a week three of it and continue on with it. Once again, this is the book, uh, the book that made your world, and I like the subtitle better, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization.